0: factory worker gets sick from handling nanoparticles. Is a $20 billion industry poisoning people? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, managing editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Welcome to the age of nanotechnology. More than 1,600 consumer products now incorporate nanoparticles, materials that are 1,000 times smaller than a human hair. And there are thousands of types of these materials being used in manufacturing today. Now we learn of a 26-year-old worker in an American factory that makes ink fluid who developed throat irritation, nasal congestion, and facial flushing on the line. It's the first published case in the U.S. of its kind. My guest today is physician and toxicologist Shane Journet, co-author of a report about this incident in the American Journal of Industrial Medicine. He joins us to talk about a technology for which we have very little solid information when it comes to assessing its health effects. Few studies have been done on the topic, yet it's estimated that by 2020 there will be six million workers handling nanoparticles worldwide. And manufacturers can't agree on whether to take expensive precautions now or wait for further data. So here is my conversation with Dr. Shane Journet. Well, Dr. Shane Journey, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I want to ask you first about what kind of nanoparticles we're talking about. What are these nanoparticles and where can they be found?
1: Nanoparticles are essentially tiny, tiny materials, particles that are that have unique characteristics at a small scale. And when I say a small scale, I'm, I'm talking, 1,000 times smaller than a human hair. And, you know, there's, there's many generations of nanoparticles and nanomaterials at this at this stage in the game. Some have, are very traditional, such as silver, nickel, lead, copper. And when we simply reduce these materials to the nanoscale, again, to under 1,000 times smaller than a human hair, their properties can change distinctly. Their actual chemical properties, which change the way they respond, say, in a composite material, in paint, in sunscreen, um, changes fundamentally. But because of the sophisticated tools in nanotechnology right now, um, it really allows industry to customize and build in the actual properties they want a product to have, from the molecular and the atomic scale up. There's two ways to produce nanomaterials. The second part to your question is, where are we finding nanotechnology right now? Are nanomaterials uh, produced using nanotechnology? So it's really exciting right now. It truly is the explosive phase of nanotechnology. Some would say this is a disruptive technology. In other words, if, if Companies involved in various industries are not either researching and developing nanotechnology or already using it, that they're already behind in terms of competitive advantage. But quite clearly, this is pervasive everywhere. To give you some examples, it's in things like circuit chips and electronics for computers, but it is extremely widespread already in the food industry, drugs, um, other healthcare apparatuses, energy, so oil, uh, clothing, defense, aerospace. Uh, the chemical industry uh, across the board is using nanotechnology at this time, uh, as well as in agriculture and even the automotive and the car industry. So it is extremely, extremely broad and is impacting every single level of industry, government, and academia.
0: How long has it been in the manufacturing process at this level of sophistication?
1: So that's a very interesting question, Bob. Um, I've been involved with uh, nanotechnology and assessment of nanomaterials for some time now. And it really posed a problem, at least from the regulatory standpoint, because you have such a range. So you have certain companies whose sole mandate is to produce nanoparticles, and send them on to downstream uh, users of this technology. However, if you take traditional chemical companies that have been producing chemicals maybe for 50 to 75 years, uh, they may not advertise uh, as obvious that they're actually using the nanotechnology. So it's a little difficult to determine how long some people have been using it and didn't know it, or how much is new. But what I can tell you, is that when nanoparticles and nanotechnology or nanomaterials were discovered to have some novel properties, it really caused a lot of companies to sort of revisit um, how they're managing these materials through their processes, and it also caused governments to revisit how they regulate these, these materials. So clearly there are some larger companies uh, certainly some Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies, many of them, who are actively pursuing research and development uh, to feed their already existing products. So that's it, it's really quite widespread, and I, w- I would say that the major push for the chemical industry towards nanotechnology has really been growing over the last five to ten years.
0: All right, so tell me about this, re, this uh, paper in the American Journal of Industrial Medicine that you co-authored with Dr. Rose Goldman, which I will link to in the show notes for this program. But that highlighted what appears to be the first case of a worker suffering serious health effects from nanotechnology. Tell me what that's all about.
1: So, um, you know, first of all, the the group that I lead, you know, we, we fully embrace nanotechnology, the properties are, you can do some really incredible uh, game-changing things with this technology and it relates to some of these really unique properties that these particles have and these materials have. The opposite side to that is the very properties which make them so attractive for value-added products and more efficient chemical processes in the manufacturing industry are really creating a problem in terms of determining whether these materials will have unique, toxic effects. And certainly not all of these materials will have problems. Most of them, many of them, will be benign, But some of them are going to have problems. And it is our experience that most people handling, supplying, working with, um, and applying nanomaterials to to their jobs Are really unsure we don't know how these particles are going to behave and in many cases workers shareholders uh, industrial hygienists you name it are really uncertain about the effects and feel that they're doing the right thing based on certain guidelines but the current guidelines are so behind how quickly we're developing the technology that they can be unsure So this paper um, really highlighted the fact that for years now people are saying, well, particles have different properties, they're going to cause toxic effects, and clearly they have in animal models. But this is a case to show that in today's modern economy uh, that nanoparticles, which were supplied by an outside supplier to this individual's company, a worker was handling them, not knowing that it was in the nanoscale format, Um, just in milligram to gram quantities and develop these effects. So the paper, that it was a Harvard-based paper that really highlighted the fact that this can happen and there's all the things that we don't know um, that cause this worker's health effects. But clearly it is the first published case uh, of a worker having this introduced and in a time-related fashion developing health effects for nanoscale nickel particles. And uh, just a little more background on that. We know that nickel causes allergy in the workplace. It's very well known. The issue here was that it was a nanoscale format and required very different precautions that were not being taken.
0: What kind of product was being made?
1: So the paper was mentioned that um, this was an ink a producing process the worker would receive the raw nanomaterials or the raw the raw particles and then through a series of, of steps begin to create inks um, ink fluids um, using the particles
0: and this was here in the united states
1: uh yes it was
0: so you you published this paper when when did it actually come out
1: it came out, uh, it was online, and so this is a peer-reviewed paper in the American Journal of Industrial Medicine, and it appeared online on May 8th.
0: So we have that one case. Do you have other documented cases of workers suffering ill effects from nanoparticles, uh, nanotechnology particles, or is this just the, the, the beginning?
1: So the very uh, common question that I've been, that I've been asked uh, since this paper has come out, it's, re- it's really created quite a stir. Um We know that from years and years and years of occupational medicine research and air pollution research, that the tiny fraction of particles or the nano-sized fraction of particles, particularly in things like diesel exhaust, um, welding fumes, actually do pose uh, more toxicity than their larger counterparts. So those are simply nano-sized particles rather than sort of modern, nanotechnology enhanced materials so we already kind of have a basis to say that some ultrafine or nanoscale particles can cause health effects in a different fashion and larger size now for particular modern nanomaterials there are um, no really other published cases there was a case from china a few years ago that um, again third world country we don't know exactly what the workers were exposed to but they isolated what are called polyacrylate nanoparticles in the lungs of about six or seven workers some of which you passed away uh, however there were a lot of drawbacks to that paper because we were really unclear what the workers were, were truly exposed to it could have been fumes, solvents you name it and then there was another case published again of sort of a high-blast particulate um, pressure-spraying worker who died sort of immediately after blasting this material in their close-breathing environment. And again, isolated particles were, were identified in the lungs of this deceased patient. So those are, those are some clues. We've now since added um, a real live worker who's developed a well-known health effect in the workplace, but now with nanomaterials raising hundreds of questions. And so, you know, I really would hope that there aren't more of these publications. But the problem with that is uh, there are very few people in the world trained in nanotoxicology, either clinically or scientifically, and so it's possible a lot of these aren't being reported. And I can tell you that as a physician and as a toxicologist, I have received sort of personal emails from workers across the United States um, who claim they have been exposed to nanomaterials and are having health effects from it. So that's, there's a far there's a big difference between getting an email versus clinically assessing someone and having that report undergo a peer-reviewed scientific review. Uh, but I suspect there are more cases out there. But the level of awareness around the effects of these some of these materials is so low that they're not necessarily being published upon.
0: Okay. So what are the symptoms of exposure? What are the specific health effects?
1: In really any occupational environment. Uh, and we, you know, we haven't even talked about consumers yet, but there's sort of three major routes that we expect, uh, particles to gain entry into the body. And this is, uh, irrespective of whether they cause health effects or not. But the lungs would be the most common. The second would be the skin and the third would be through ingestion, um, into the gastrointestinal tract. So in this particular worker's case in the paper that we discussed, This worker developed an immune response. We call it sensitization, where essentially the immune response is triggered into really not liking being exposed to this material. And it manifests in a number of ways. So in this particular worker's case, she developed cough, um, shortness of breath. She had facial flushing. And the jewelry that she was wearing, which would be like an alloy-type jewelry as opposed to pure metal, contains small amounts of of nickel in there because it's a mixture of a few metals. And so often what we see when workers develop this response is they develop a, a red rash around the sites the nickel becomes in contact with the body. So in this particular worker's case, we mentioned in the paper, the rash developed around the belt buckle as well as uh, in the earrings, so uh, this is this is the type of response she had. Now, some workers may not even know they're being exposed acutely. Uh, we do know that small particles can make breathing problems worse for people who already have breathing problems. so there's asthma, for example, or occupational asthma. Uh, it would be reasonable to assume that somebody who may be getting exposed to nanoparticles, uh, some types of nanoparticles, may, may actually notice that their asthma is being exacerbated. Um, other things with skin would be include, again, rash, irritated skin, contact dermatitis. And these are all short-term effects that we may or may not see. Again, um, it would take a full assessment from a clinician, a physician, to see what other things we're seeing clinically. Uh, But the long-term effects are clearly unknown at this time. There are few, if any, long-term studies in this domain. And sort of the the, the big-picture concern from insurance groups, industry, physicians, is is this something that won't manifest? 20 or 30 years down the road, just like silica, asbestos, um, and some of these other diseases that we have a long history of.
0: You you even suggested in the case of the China case, which I guess was not completely documented, you know, officially documented, that there is the possibility of fatality?
1: Again, this is an unknown, but, you know, as a toxicologist, the, the dose determines the poison. So if somebody is is exposed to a very high level of a very certain type of nanomaterial that creates a reaction in the lungs where people decompensate, um, that is a possibility in the short term. But clearly that hasn't been proven yet. Um, the workers in the China case were developed what we call pleural effusions and difficulty breathing, which is essentially fluid accumulations outside the lungs which which creates breathing problems and again it it may not have been the nanoparticles in that particular case there may have been other solvents or other chemicals that created this response
0: you also referenced that nanotechnology is being used in the development of certain drugs, did you not? And does that mean that some of these nanoparticles become ingested by, uh, by, nature, by the nature of them being used by the consumer?
1: Uh, yes, you're right. So, I mean, one example of a consumer product would be sunscreen. So every single sunscreen that is on the market now, pretty much, that doesn't show up on your skin, that's transparent, has nanoparticles in it. Um, Well-known, well-established, and when those came, those were, we realized that the federal governments, the United States, Canada, Australia had to go back and revisit these particles to determine whether there's any toxicity associated with them. Uh, another example in healthcare would be silver, as I mentioned before, which kills off bacteria. We incorporate these into wound dressings. We're actually seeing less infections, for example. But we're expo- you know, in theory, you're exposing the patient to silver nanoparticles, which is still being studied. But to answer your question directly about drugs, uh, there's this whole exploding field of nanomedicine, really, and that is, can we create little delivery vehicles or custom-designed nanoparticles so that when we either ingest the drug into the body or inject it into the bloodstream? that the the drug is actually delivered specifically to say a cancer cell rather than suffering all the side effects that widespread chemotherapy does now now the other the other side in the pharmaceutical or the the drug industry is can we reduce side effects using nanotechnology and therefore revisit medications that weren't so safe maybe twenty or thirty years ago? So there there are pros and cons to this, and clearly in the medical world, you know, if somebody is if somebody's suffering from cancer, for example, and we're treating them with nanoparticles in an effort to lower their side effects and potentially offer a good outcome for the patient, then you know the priorities are a little different. These are calculated in small volumes, and clearly have a a regimen through the FDA in the U.S., for example, and, and Health Canada in Canada, uh, for evaluating how these drugs behave in the body. So usually when I talk about the health impacts of nanotechnology, again, as a toxicologist and a physician, there's some pretty incredible things that are going to happen in the medical industry because of nanotechnology, incredibly positive things. And then as a toxicologist, I've, I'm a little more, would be more, concerned or more focused on the large-scale production, volume, and handling of materials um, by workers, consumers, and and other stakeholders.
0: Well, have you or anyone else come up with any suggested guidelines for what manufacturers need to be doing to protect their workers from the effects of nanoparticles in the manufacturing process? So,
1: so, So, very good question. The guidelines are difficult for a number of reasons. What I'm hearing from various groups which sort of oversee the health and safety and, ma- and manufacturing concerns around nanomaterials is that there's two camps, really. One would be the precautionary principle. You know, everybody put on their masks, everybody put on their gloves, everyone has the right filters, anytime you're handling anything on the nanoscale. So really a blanket approach to to protecting workers from something that we don't know anything about um, it, it's it's mixed in industry but some some groups in industry have told me that this is this would be far too expensive it, it would cost industry millions of dollars to, to approach it in this manner um, and then and and that we should wait for hard scientific data Um in which industrial hygienists, for example, or toxicologists would use to help guide where you need precautions. Um, And so those are the real two camps is, you know, we should blanket everybody, you know, everybody protect themselves no matter what, versus let's wait for the science on a case-by-case basis. Now, that being said, in the United States, this is strictly from an occupational standpoint, because obviously you've got the EPA involved, the FDA, um, and various occupational health groups that are looking at this. From a strictly occupational standpoint, NIOSH, or the National, National Institutes for Occupational Safety and Health, have have put up some generic guidelines. So... If you're working with in a lab environment, these are some of the things that would probably be a good idea, is what they report in their guidelines. And, and as far as how much someone can be exposed to, what we call exposure limits, they've come up with two exposure limits for two types of nanoparticles. One, single-walled carbon nanotubes, and the other, titanium dioxide. So that is two out of literally thousands of types of materials. And, you know, our concern uh, with our consultancy is really that, uh, is what companies tell us is they, well, you know, I I went to these websites for the guidelines, but I'm not using carbon nanotubes. I'm using this other fancy new carbon nanotube. This is what we do with the nanoparticles. I don't know if this even applies to us. And so, you know, that's one of the things we do within our company is try to sort out, um, particularly for companies using advanced forms of nanomaterials, what types of things apply to them and what, what do not. And, you know, keeping in touch with the theme of your show, the supply chain, you know, we feel that there's actually a strategic approach to looking at the potential toxicity of these materials and what protective measures are needed, depending on where in the life cycle, and therefore where in the supply chain these materials are being handled, and uh, I, you know I, we think that can that can actually change uh, reduce costs for companies, but also, as I said earlier, if companies are gonna have a problem going to have a problem with these materials, they should know up front. And likewise, you know, we embrace nanotechnology at our company. If the if it's perfectly benign, you'd want to know that too. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, uh, but right now, people are very unsure about which which road to take.
0: So, in the meantime, are there rigorous scientific studies underway or being planned that will determine once and for all what are the impacts, how long exposure should be, what you know, and, and how how can one truly protect oneself?
1: Yes. So a number of countries around the world are working to target particular types. For example, I think Canada was charged with doing silver. NIOSH has a number of studies going on with materials that are out there in fairly high volumes. For example, as I said, they're already doing long-term studies and higher-level studies for carbon nanotubes and for other pigments like titanium dioxide uh, and other formats. The, the thing is, it is not humanly possible or feasible to test and do long-term studies on the breadth and volume of nanomaterials, which are currently out there right now. So there's already 1,600 consumer products reported that we know of. There's probably more than that. Um, And behind closed doors or within the industrial process, there are literally hundreds, probably thousands of types of nanomaterials that are already being used, handled, mixed, applied, and possibly recycled that we we will probably never have data on. And so, you know, it's case reports like the one we reported, which might say, wait a minute. Something might be different about this nanoscale nickel, and that might lead to some studies. But, for example, for the type of nickel that we reported on in the case report of the worker, there was only two studies, and those were done, I believe, both in rats. So that's really the the landscape of where we're at trying to get this information, and, so, and that's really set up the, this debate, you know, precaution. Or wait for data, because if we wait for data, uh, it's going to cost a lot of companies a lot of money um, if they can't continue to produce new products and have a competitive advantage with this technology.
0: Well, we will be watching with keen interest as, uh, as research on this advances and we get a better sense of where we are with regard to this subject. I'm sorry, though, right now we're out of time, but I want to thank you so much, Dr. Shane Journay, for telling us about this critical issue of nanotechnology and manufacturing. Thank you very much for being with us.
1: Pleasure to help you out.
0: that was my conversation with Dr. Shane Journay. I expect we'll be hearing a lot more on this topic in the very near future. Hope you enjoyed the show. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch nearly 2,000 videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. See you next time.